Uh, hey, just before the episode begins, um, I just want to mention on October the 1st, 2018, uh, I am doing a special Imaginary Advice live show in Chicago as part of the fest run by Third Coast. Um, the show is at Lynx Hall. A special guest, which I'm really excited about, is AJ McLennan. You can get tickets at thefestchicago.org. Info is it's all on the Imaginary Advice podcast Facebook group. If you know someone in Chicago and you think they might like the show, please send them my way. Okay, right. <clears throat> Let's begin then. Imaginary Advice is four years old today. Did you know that? Happy, happy birthday, Imaginary Advice. Hang on, let me just... Uh... Yeah. So now that the podcast has reached four years, I can say that Imaginary Advice is now officially the longest running audio project that I've been involved with. Now, I've never spoken about this before, but there were, in fact, three other radio programs that I had a hand in before Imaginary Advice. Program number one was a weekly drum and bass show that I co-hosted on Livewire FM in the city of Norwich, called Tight Norwich. That was from 1999 to 2002, I think. Um... Program number two was the Friday morning bulletin program that I used to co-host at Colchester Sixth Form College. I think that's from 97 and 99. But the thing I want to talk about today is program number three. Because it was program number three that first gave me my love of making audio. Now, I I say I, I love making imaginary advice. Like, I love making it so, so much. But... Program number three was still probably the best program that I've ever worked on. It was. At least emotionally, for me, it was the purest. And I, I, I have never again experienced the sheer joy of creation that I got to feel when working on that program. And almost everything that I do on Imaginary Advice is about trying to recapture that feeling. No, I was convinced that this show was lost forever. I mean, I suspected there were some recordings somewhere, though I, I didn't realise that I actually had one of those recordings myself. There I was, looking through my old cassette mixtape collection a couple of weeks ago, and, uh, and I found it. Okay. I must admit, I was a bit nervous to listen to it, because... Maybe some things are best left in memory. Maybe it wouldn't be the amazing show that I remember. Boom, 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 boom. One, two, three. Turns out I needn't have worried. Hi, anybody in the world. I'm a Yaki and a Yuki and a Buki and a Buki and a So the show, it was, uh, it was recorded at my, my grandma's house in Edinburgh. I think the year is 1983. This was actually, this was my favourite thing to do uh, at my grandma's house. Sit on the end of her sofa, facing my grandma's hi-fi, and record endless rolling radio shows into the small metal microphone attached to the unit. It's sunny at the moment. Get all bit cloudy. I was 22 years old, only joking. 
I was four. Grandma had a nice house. So yeah, the pizza and what's on the baby? You might find it a little bit hard to believe it's me, uh, based on the uh, the Scottish accent, but you're just gonna have to take my word for it. I meant what I said about these shows being the most fun I've ever had in front of a mic. I know it's impossible to get back there. Like, you can't recapture the sheer freedom of creation that you felt as a kid. But still, I think there's there's something to aspire to in there. They had his own tree in the house, and they had his own species as well. These radio shows, uh, they tend to break down into a couple of regular sections. <laughs> um, and one of those repeated sections is uh, me singing uh, the song Teenage Kicks by The Undertones. Apart from that uh, pop-punk classic, uh, most of the other music on the show is uh, is just scatting, really. Yeah, I, I, I do a lot of scatting. There's the occasional autobiographical essay, here I am, talking about my relationship with quilts. has two quilts. One was a drawer and one on the bed. They're really good, you know. Uh, but for the rest of the time, uh, I mostly tell ghost stories, which just goes to show that my interests haven't changed that much in the intervening years. Ghosts. Teenage angst and weird atonal music still feature pretty prominently in my oeuvre. Of all the other shows that I've made, it's um, it's funny that this one is still the closest in tone to imaginary advice. I think that's a good sign. I'm proud of that. My grandma doesn't really appear on any of the recordings. Actually, you can briefly hear her at this moment um, when I notice that it's snowing outside. But even without her voice, um, my grandmother's presence is, is, is all over these tapes. My grandma always encouraged me to be creative. Around this same time, she, uh, she got me into writing nonsense poetry, which would then later become the primary way that I would communicate with her when my family moved from Scotland to England. I, I was terrible at writing letters, but nonsense verse, that was like our own private language and all of my interest in poetry kind of evolves out of that whenever I was staying with my grandma she just let me record for as long as I wanted come to think of it she's kind of like an amazing she's kind of like a hype man really you know everybody needs a grandma with them in the studio you know just to let them know when their scatting is fire a duty boom 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 and, uh, and I, 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 I appreciated that. That's it, Grandma. And then um, whenever I was done recording, uh, I'd call my grandma back into the room to help me stop the tape. I, could, I didn't know how to do that. I think that knowing that she was nearby um, was one of the things that actually gave me the confidence to keep recording. I'm, uh, I'm very lucky that I got to have her in my life. And I, and I suppose that's what the tapes really tell me. So, um, 
I thought I would uh, I would play for you now as a kind of self-indulgent birthday treat to myself. I thought I'd play you one of the improvised stories that I found on the tape. Trust me, I want to tell you a story. And I know that some listeners might find it quite hard to understand my uh, my four-year-old Scottish lisp. So, um, to help people out, I'm going to provide a little bit of running translation. This part is called The Boy Who Saw It... The Boy Who Saw It Tomorrow. Okay, so the title is The Boy Who Saw Tomorrow. The Boy... Yeah, yeah, that's what I said. The boy who saw tomorrow. And now the story begins. He saw it every day. He saw it every day. He saw everyone. He saw everyone. And he saw it every day. And he saw every day. So the boy couldn't do what he wanted to do. So the boy couldn't do what he wanted to do. Which I presume means, you know, he couldn't be a normal little boy, I guess, because of the burden of his psychic powers. The boy! He heard a sound. It sounded like this. The boy heard a sound, and it sounded like this. Now, you're about to hear one of the boy's visions of the future, and uh, you can tell we're in a spooky dream because I start doing a kind of sinister scatting in the background. Boom, 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 boom. Red light flashing. Scary people. Red light flashing. Scary people. Scary night. Scary night. People are trapped in cages. Jesus Christ. People are trapped in cages. At night time, that happened. At night time, that happened. Witches available. I think I'm saying either witches are there or witches available. Hang on, listen again. Witches available. I, I still don't know. People are out in the dark. People are out in the dark. So the prophecy is, is, is coming into focus now. We're, we're leading up to some kind of harbinger of death. And a man. It's some kind of big bad lurking in the sands of time. You could see it. It was. It was. It was Boxman. Boxman. Yet the boy has seen in his future. The coming of his destructor. His name is Boxman. He's a robot Boxman and he tries to kill people. He can't help it. Boxman is a robot. He tries to kill people, but um but I, I do try to elicit some sympathy for this killer robot. Apparently he just can't help it. The boy saw it too. The boy saw it too, i.e. he saw all this in his premonition. He saw these horrific scenes in slow motion, so you could really see it good enough. All the blood splatter and the scary people and the red lights flashing and all the available witches. He experienced it all in rich, high def slow motion. Boxman, he said. Boxman, said the boy, awaking from his dream. The boys ran away. Scared for his life, the boy ran away. They went. Out to the woods. He went out to the woods. But he was lost because he had found a bear. Have you got any bread for me? The, the story takes a little bit of a left turn now. Uh, the boy, he gets lost in the woods uh, and then he meets a bear 
and uh, the bear wants to know if the boy has any spare bread. Oh, we'll have to kill the bear. So we killed the bear because it had an axe with him. Uh, in an act of senseless violence, the boy murders the bear with an axe. And he chopped down trees. And they found the railway station. After dispatching the bear, the boy continues on. Soon. He has to chop down trees to continue until, hidden in the undergrowth, he finds a railway station. The one down the train away from the bears. The boy boards a train in order to escape the bear. So either the bear wasn't dead or the boy just wanted to get away from the bear's corpse because of guilt. I like both interpretations, so I'm just going to let that ambiguity stand. But there was a bear on the train. Ah, but there was a bear on the train. Lots of bears. Lots of bears. So, so we all got off. There was a teddy bear train. So we got off the train again. Uh, turns out it was a special teddy bear train. You know, a teddy bear train. You don't need me to explain that to you. However, a um, bit of deeper analysis, though, referring to the animals now as teddy bears, uh, is a sort of significant change in tone, which suggests that... Um, boy might now be feeling different about the fact he killed one with an axe. So we got off and back into the woods again and back to our house. The boy walks back through the woods and back to his house. And that's the end. Bye-bye. Grandma! Grandma! Okay, so so that's it. End of story. Boy has a premonition about being killed by a robot, runs off to the forest, kills a bear, ends up a train full of bears, and then runs away back to his house again. It's not the most conventional story shapes. It feels Frankenstein's together from a couple of different story archetypes. And as a result, yeah, there's a lot of loose ends that uh, the story forgets to tie up. Like, uh, did the boy forget? But the whole reason that he ran away was to escape Boxman. Is he now, by going home, is he is he resigned to facing Boxman? Is this a story about determinism? Like, who were the people in cages that the boy saw in his vision? What's the deal with that secret teddy bear railroad? I mean, the, the whole story is loose ends, really. But I kind of love it for that. I, I quite like the energy that that gives it, despite its strange shape. I, I still think it's pretty relatable. You know, you run away from something only to run straight into a totally different problem and running away from that takes you right back to where you started. I mean, it feels like an ending because you're home again, but you haven't actually solved anything. In fact, you've actively made everything worse because now you've got a killer robot coming over tomorrow and you have to live with the guilt of senselessly killing a hungry teddy bear with an axe. All he wanted was some bread. What's the... Why did you do that? Boy who saw tomorrow, why? Where were your powers of foresight when you were murdering fantastical talking woodland creatures? Do you know what? I'm going to say it. You know better than Boxman. That's the truth. At least Boxman is a robot. He's following a program. Yes, he kills, but yeah, he just can't help it. Can you say the same? Really? I mean, did you have a choice, boy who saw tomorrow? Or is the future itself a program? program that we're all doomed to follow is it even possible to run away from that program or 
is the very act of running away. The act of running the program. Also, what's the deal with that secret teddy bear railroad? What's going on there? You see, there's a lot of questions. That's what a good story should do, you know. So I thought, I thought today in the podcast, I'm going to try to tell this story again. Um, I just, I feel like maybe I was onto something back in 1983 and I, I just wanted to take another stab at it. It's not plagiarism. I wrote it myself. So, uh, and, you know, and you learn through copying, right? So I'm going to copy it. I'm going to try and learn something from it. Call it a soft reboot. And hopefully um, I, I can reclaim a little bit of the energy that I had for storytelling when I was four years old. So, um, if the tape is rolling, let's begin. I want to tell you a story. Quick trigger warning. Uh, This story, like the original, contains terminal illness, murder, psychosis and violence. Uh, It's called The Man Who Saw... The man who saw tomorrow. Brian Dickey Smith was climbing over a turnstile one day when his mind broke open like a cornflower. One second, he was taking a shortcut through the field behind his house. The next, all of time was screaming its way into him. Making angels in the soft October mud, Brian Dickie Smith felt the field around him ripple through history. The entire timeline jammed into the back of his brain like a knitting needle. He saw Cistercian monks repairing the abbey and the field won over. He saw Vikings flashing their dicks at each other by campfire. He saw a time long before the invention of England when there was so much oxygen in the air that spiders were eight foot tall and cute. He saw himself five years ago dragging a Christmas tree along this very same path He saw a car park full of identical bottle green automobiles. He saw fire dancing on the water. He saw his father talking to a man repairing a carnival float. The float said, 1978. His father looked young and was still smoking. He saw many years from now, some people building a prison in the field where the abbey once stood. He saw wisteria growing up the walls of the prison. He saw thousands of men walking in through the gates of the prison, all of them terrified. And then he saw the same men walking right out again, still terrified, except now they were bald and old. He saw a time when all this was forest. He saw boys play a football match with a cardboard box in the rain. Brian saw himself wearing exactly the same outfit, pointing to the spot where he was lying in the mud, saying, that's where it happened, right there. The scene vanished, and now the field was dark and lonely. 
Brian saw the silhouette of a man. Then the man blew his own head off with a shotgun. At night time, that happened. Brian saw several picnics, a few attempts at sex, not to mention the many, many days when the field was empty, dandelions while wying under a strobing sun. Until eventually, an ambulance arrived. A paramedic with cheesy breath administered a sedative to the right arm of Brian Dickie Smith and the visions faded away, back into the thick black porridge of sleep. When Brian Dickie Smith woke up in the hospital, he no longer felt as if he was falling through time. Whatever door had opened in his mind, the doctors had gone in and locked it again. Once more, Brian felt irrevocably normal, and this made him sad. Brian's life had been one of peaks and troughs, and Brian was willing to accept this as part of the inevitable pattern of life. Sometimes you just had to wait for the bad times to pass. Some waits were longer than others. The last major peak for Brian Dickie Smith had been the period 1993 to 1996, a period that directly correlated to the lifespan of the TV game show Space Pirates, on which Brian had been a recurring character. On Space Pirates, members of the public were tasked with competing in novelty games of strength and skill on a set designed to look like a giant dystopian spacecraft. Brian played one of the space pirates. He'd been a bodybuilder in his 20s. The casting director had approached him at a muscle show. How'd you like to be a space pirate, he said. On Space Pirates, Brian wore lycra pants and something that looked a bit like an S&M harness. His character's name was The Vogue. He was hairy and ruthless. Audiences seemed to like him. Brian was usually saved for the final game of the programme, called Airlock, during which Brian would try to manhandle remaining contestants through a series of doors and then blow them into space. Those that were able to avoid being blasted through the airlock won a £1,000 cash prize. When the show was cancelled, a group of the space pirates pulled their money together and opened a space-themed gym in Croydon, Brian probably would have gone in if the space pirates had asked him to join, but they didn't. And anyway, that was a long time ago now. One of those space pirates was dead, heart attack. Another had become a UKIP counsellor down on the south coast. The gym had been bought by Virgin. They painted over the space wallpaper, and that was pretty much the end of the space pirate legacy. Shortly after the show ended, Brian had moved back into his dad's house. His dad needed some help with the plumbing, plus it helped Brian with his panic attacks. They'd been escalating in London, but out in the countryside, it was easier to escape himself. Brian embraced the lull, for a while at least. Two years ago, he started a fitness YouTube channel called Getting Heavy with the Vogue, but the TV company sent him a cease and desist. Apparently they still own the space pirate name, so he couldn't use it. Brian deleted the channel. It was fair to say that spirits had been a bit low since then. But then, that morning, falling off that turnstile behind his house, the world exploding into light, 
Time turning on its side and fluxing into the infinite, Brian had felt chosen once again. Just like when that casting director with the ponytail came up behind him at the Malden Muscleman semi-final, honked his bicep and yelled, how'd you like to be a space pirate? in his ear. Sometimes all you have to do is strike a pose and the whole world comes to you. You have to wait a while sometimes, but eventually it comes. That morning, God had reached down from his throne at the end of the world and handed Brian some incredible post-human assignment. He was sure of it. Brian had seen everything. He'd seen everyone. everyone. He'd seen every day. He'd seen everything. But now, sitting in his hospital bed, he couldn't recall any of it. Except if he closed his eyes and emptied all his thoughts, he could just about feel something at the back of his mind, a presence sitting on the edge of a black sofa in a pitch black room, a tiny part of him that still remembered. A doctor was standing at the end of Brian's bed, looking at him strangely. Where do I know you from? said the doctor. Brian Dickie Smith finished his glass of water. I was a space pirate, said Brian. On the TV? In the 1990s. I was the Vogue. What, said the doctor. The Vogue, said Brian. What, said the doctor. The Vogue, said Brian. I don't know what that is, said the doctor. The doctor came around to the side of the bed. He took a torch out and shot it in Brian's eyes. The doctor asked Brian if he had a history of seizures. Brian said no. The doctor asked Brian if he was taking any medication or had ever taken any performance-enhancing drugs, steroids, etc. Brian said no. Then Brian explained to the doctor that during his seizure, he had witnessed the entire history of mankind flash past him like an express train, all of history compressed down to a microdot dissolving under his tongue. The doctor made some notes. I'm going to schedule an MRI scan, he said, just to make sure everything is all right in the old noggin. Brian said, okay. The doctor said it would take two weeks before the machine was available. In the meantime, it would be best if Brian stayed at home and tried to rest. If you have any more episodes, come back to us immediately, said the doctor. He had a tie clip shaped like a wine bottle, Brian noticed. He must really love wine. The hospital had called Brian's emergency contact. His name was Damien. Damien came to the hospital as soon as he finished work. Damien had a long, straggly white beard like a druid, but lacked the necessary height to pull off the druid look effectively. Also, Damien was wearing a black polo shirt that said logistics in white on the pocket. It was a look that seemed to be pulling in multiple directions. Can I get a lift home? said Brian. Are you okay? said Damien. Brian nodded. I stepped out of the time stream and saw the whole universe, said Brian. Brian realised he was smiling like a crazy person. He tried to dial back the intensity a bit. It felt important to come across as a serious person, particularly now. 
I think God left a back door into the source code of creation, said Brian, and I think I accidentally fell through it. Nope, thought Brian. Totally failed the normal test there. Damien scratched his nose for a very long time. Do you want to stop off at a supermarket on the way or um, do you just want to go straight home? Brian considered this. Straight home, he said. Once Brian Dickey Smith was dressed, the two men exited the ward. However, upon leaving the lift, the men were unable to locate the exit to the hospital building. For inexplicable reasons, I discovered they had to go back up in the lift to level two, cross a gangway to another building, then go back down to the ground floor to reach the exit. However, when they reached the exit, it led directly into an underground car park, which was definitely not the way that Damien had arrived. He'd definitely parked his car in the front car park. So the two retraced their steps a second time and went back in search of a map or a help desk. To their confusion, Brian and Damien ended up right back on the ward where they had begun. Brian's bed had already been filled by an elegant-looking pensioner wearing burgundy silk pyjamas. This time, they exited Brian's ward on the other side. We started off on the wrong foot to begin with, said Damien. That was where we messed up. But now they were standing in a different ward. This one with huge machines between each of the beds. Each patient was riddled with tubes and wires. The whole room hummed with electricity. From down the corridor, they could hear someone screaming, help me, help me. But no one moved. The nurses remained focused on their computer screens. Beyond that ward was a glass corridor connecting them to a newer building with fashionable grey walls. The sign said, Diagnostic Imaging. In a glass office, a nurse was looking at a monitor feed. On the monitor, Brian could see a grainy image of a patient being drawn head first into a hole in a giant white cube. Brian realised he was probably looking at an MRI scanner. He'd seen them in films and whatnot. It would be him on that monitor in two weeks' time, his brain appearing in little black and white slices on the screen adjacent. Even through the wall, Brian could hear the sound of the machine yelping and whirring in its own primitive language. It was Boxman, Boxman. Sometimes it even sounded like it was laughing or uh, scolding you, maybe. Or uh, maybe even threatening you. He's a robot, Boxman. Brian imagined himself surrounded by that machine, frozen, still, terrified, deafened by that inhuman cackling as the scanner chopped him up into thousands of tiny pieces, those invisible fingers reaching deep into his brain and lighting up a tumour the size of a Brussels sprout. Maybe there was something growing in the old noggin. Maybe he wasn't the next step in the evolution of the human race, but in fact, a relatively ordinary man with a relatively common terminal illness. 
The doctor had said that brain cancer affects one in 70 people. Brian tried to imagine a gathering of 70 people, say the audience of Espresso Laughs, the local comedy night in town. Brian had been to a couple of shows there. He imagined himself in the audience of Espresso Laughs, one of 70, laughing uproariously at whatever was happening on stage. It's not that big a room, thought Brian. If one person in this room definitely has a brain tumour, he's to say it isn't me. I look just like everyone else, but maybe I'm laughing at all the wrong things. Maybe the things I'm laughing at are things that aren't actually happening at all. Jesus f***ing Christ, thought Brian. I need a drink. The MRI was so loud now. Sounded like it was trying to smash through the wall. Brian Dickey Smith had to admit that he didn't really know what was going on in his life right now. But he did know one thing for certain. Once he was put into that machine, there would be no turning back. Once the truth was out there, that would be it. Walkman. And he tried to kill people. Before going home, Brian got Damien to stop off at the field behind his house. They walked over to the turnstile together. It's cold, said Damien. Brian looked down at the patch of mud next to the turnstile. You could still make out a rough Brian-shaped outline down there though the ambulance stretcher tracks had junked it up a bit. Brian pointed to the mud. That's where it happened. Right there. Okay, said Damien, beard blowing in the wind. So, is this location significant somehow? No, said Brian. No, it isn't. It's just, uh, I just had to do that, that's all. Then they walked back to the car. Damien offered to stay over that night, so Brian would have the comfort of knowing someone was nearby. Brian made up the bed in his dad's old room. Before bed, they ordered a pizza. To make up for the fact that they weren't drinking any alcohol, they ordered an excessive number of side dishes. So, said Damien, you think you saw the future? Yep, said Brian, and the past. Saw everything. It was like someone was fanning a huge encyclopedia in front of my eyes. And uh, in that moment, I felt a sense of cosmic peace and understanding. You know, old fear just drained away and a cold, abstract love of all things descended upon me. Damien nodded. So how does the world end? I can't remember, said Brian. It comes back to me in little bits and pieces, really. I haven't remembered that bit yet, but I did see everything. So I know it's in my head somewhere. This doesn't have anything to do with the show, does it? No, said Brian. Why would it? No. Space Pirates isn't real, Damo. It was a TV show. This has got nothing to do with... 
For some of us, that show was very real, said Damien. Yeah, but Damo, this was the actual future. Not blokes in tinfoil and glow sticks. Nothing from before matters now. Don't you see? This isn't a fucking game show. This is real. Damo nodded and poked the fire for a bit. All right, said Damien eventually. So what bits do you remember then? Uh, I remember, said Brian, I remember some, some people, some, some figures, and, uh, and it's dark. So, so where exactly are these people? And, you know, and, and when? Well, I'm not sure. But I can tell you, they're, uh, and they're moving really slowly. And, um, yeah, yeah, they're definitely people. It's not great, said Damien. Have you got anything else? Box Buddy said. Brian nodded, yeah. Boys, run away. Yeah, I, uh, I, I don't go back to the hospital. I, I, it's, I run away because I'm too scared to get in the MRI machine. Okay, said Damien. But you mean you could go back to the hospital? Yeah, said Brian. But I don't. I've seen the future and I don't. But the future isn't written yet. Yeah, it is, says Brian. I've seen it. Jesus Christ, said Damien. So where where do you go then? If you don't go back to the hospital, where do you go? I mean, you have to do something, right? Brian looked out the window. They went out to the woods. Damien's voice sounded strange. The words shunting around like bumper cars. You don't know, do you? Brian, you need help. Don't worry, said Brian. I know exactly where I'm going. I've seen it. They went out to wood. Where then, said Damien. They went out to wood. I'm going out to Las Vegas. One week later, Brian Dickey Smith was sat at a roulette table in the Golden Tooth, downtown Vegas. A waiter had just brought him a ham sandwich and a cocktail called Chloroform Charlie. It was basically a vodka lime with a bit of dry ice on the top. Of all the casinos Brian had sampled so far, the Golden Tooth was his favourite. It was the noisiest, most garish spot on the block. The walls were alive. They popped with digital projections of spinning gold coins. It was like seeing stars when you took a blow to the head. There was so much glitz and noise you could barely think. It was the perfect place to leave the past behind and concentrate on the future, which, as far as Brian Dickie Smith was concerned, was all about getting rich on his newfound talent. Brian already knew the result of every roulette game every hand of poker it was all locked in his head somewhere he just needed to tease it out every night after his shift on the tables Brian would return to his motel and try to sharpen his psychic abilities he'd sit on the bed cutting the deck over and over two hearts two of clubs this time two hearts okay 
This time, do arts. Brian Dickey Smith knew that it was his destiny to come here. He'd heard the little voice in his head tell him so. He went out to Las Vegas. Although sometimes Brian Dickie Smith did wonder if he'd misheard it. The voice did have quite a thick, strange accent. Brian took a sip of his cocktail. Time was just a road. One had simply to walk down it. He let the voice in his head guide him. It was calling to him from the future, holding up a number. Yes, he could see it now. The number. The number. He made his bet and let the ball do his dance. Black 19, said the croupier. Yeah, fuck it, said Brian. By the following Wednesday, Brian Dickie Smith had concluded his modest savings. Brian tried multiple ATM machines, but they pretty much all said the same thing, pretty much, which was no. With two days board left until he was homeless, Brian Dickey Smith started looking for a job, preferably one that was cash in hand and didn't require a work visa because he didn't have one of those. A man in the bar at a tooth told Brian there were cash jobs going for extra security work at the orbit at the far end of the strip. Brian made a CV in an internet cafe and took a refreshing two-hour walk over to the Orbit Casino. When Brian saw the Orbit, he felt something in his heart turn inside out. The Orbit was shaped like a giant flying saucer. It felt like reaching the end of a long, tenuous joke. Head of security at the Orbit was a peppermint gum chewer named Ben Apoloco. Ben took one look at Brian's frame and gave him a trial shift that night on the door. And once again, as easy as that, Brian Dickey Smith was back throwing people off of spaceships. He even had a costume, not as spiky as his space pirate one, but just as tight. Security at the orbit were called Astro Guards. They had glowing epaulets, a helmet with an antenna that didn't do anything, plus a flashing panel on their chests like the Knight Rider car. Brian took every shift he could get. He was good at it too. Rather than drag drunks onto the street like the other doorman, Brian would pick them up completely, their feet capering in the air as he carried them outside. Once there was a fight in the smoking area between two guys that both looked like Michael Douglas down on luck Michael Douglas's. Brian stopped the fight with a single push, sending the more offensive Michael Douglas skidding backwards over a concrete abutment. The crowd had cheered. There was no time for gambling now. Whenever Brian thought about his first week in Vegas, he felt the blood rush to his face. What a fool he'd been to think he was some kind of time messiah. What a lunatic. What a sap with a broken brain. What kind of person doesn't even know themselves if they're waving or drowning? He still heard the voice in his head from time to time. But now he knew. Now he knew that the voice was ridiculous. 
It was a glitch, a feedback loop in the brain caused by pressure and trauma. The voice had to be ignored, not indulged. Alcohol helped, of course. It was easy for Brian to do a few hours in the bar before work, get a solid baseline that he could top up throughout his shift. Hey, you got any bread for me? Sorry? What did you say? said Brian. Another Astro guard had sidled up next to him. Brian seemed to think that this guy's name was Jeff. Jeff leaned back into Brian's ear. I said, have you got my bread? My money? Bread and honey? Money? It's Cockney slang. I thought you were English. I am, said Brian. I just, I didn't know what was happening. My money, said Jeff. 500. Have you got it? Brian had borrowed the money from Jeff to pay back a different loan from a guy called Todd. He'd been meaning to borrow some other money from a guy called Brett that was meant to pay back Jeff, but all the names had just got too confusing. Don't worry, said Jeff. Just after work, meet me out front, yeah? I have uh, I have this private hire thing. So you, you do this for me, I'll write off the whole amount, Okay. Sound good. Around midnight, Jeff was driving Brian North towards a storage park. Jeff had changed into his civvies, a hula shirt and slacks. For some reason, Brian was still in his Astro Guard uniform. Basically, it's just it's just a kid brother or some guy. This kid, he's a total menace, yeah? He's always causing trouble. Someone just wants him beaten up to, you know, teach him a lesson. My guys already picked him up and locked him in my storage unit. So now all that we have to do is go in there and scare the hell out of him. See there on the, uh, the back seat there, there's, uh, there's an axe. You pick that up. I thought you could be holding that when you first go in, yeah? Because that's going to shit him up for sure. Brian nodded. Because it has an axe You haven't been drinking, right? No, said Brian which was a strange and bold thing to say, considering how much he'd had to drink. When they arrived at the storage unit, Brian could hear the kid calling for help. Jeff put on a Dracula mask. It's to hide my identity, said Jeff. Yeah, but what about my identity, said Brian. You'll be fine, said Jeff. You already look like as if Robocop and a hay bale had a baby. So the kid's just going to be totally bewildered. Like, he's not going to remember shit. Are you ready? Okay. Three. Two. The boy was standing at the back of the unit, wearing a koala onesie with electrical tape wrapped around it. Oh, yeah, we did that too. Said Jeff. You know, to uh, humiliate him. Oh! Brian stomped into the unit. Rawr, he said. Brian hit the boy over the head with the axe handle. The boy went down and won. What did you do? Said Jeff. I said beat him up, not knock him out. The axe was supposed to be a prop. Were you talking, I used the handle. The handle of an axe? You knocked him cold, oh my. Okay, now, now we've got to drive him to the hospital, okay? This is... Get his legs. It quickly became clear that the boy had used his koala onesie as a toilet at some point in the evening. The legs were unpleasant to hold. Brian hauled the shit-covered kid into the back of Jeff's Volvo and they took off for the hospital. 
a fog descended as they drove, thin and ghostly, like tissue paper. Jeff rolled up to the hospital at a speed that was supposed to feel casual. The men swiftly delivered Koala Boy onto the grass roundabout outside the entrance, and then they drove away again, slightly faster, but still at what you would consider an inconspicuous speed. He'll be fine, right? said Brian. I mean, he's, he's in good hands now. Yeah, said Jeff. He'll be fine. Jeff was still wearing his Dracula mask. I'm, not, I'm just going to keep it on until, uh, until, you know, until we get somewhere safe, he said. Okay, said Brian. And then Brian opened the car door and rolled away from the vehicle. Brian skidded on his side, eventually colliding with a bus stop. By the time Brian got back on his feet, Jeff's car was out of sight. Brian staggered into a side road, joining a flow of young partygoers moving between hotels. Luckily, the alcohol in his system was masking the majority of the pain. Brian hoped that Jeff wouldn't take his dramatic exit personally. He just couldn't stay in that car a second longer and couldn't really think of a good excuse to leave. Brian's head was throbbing. Shadows rushed towards him. It felt like an egg was hatching in his brain. Above him, neon signs so bright you could hear them singing. Everybody seemed to be moving in the opposite direction to Brian. The whole street was trying to push him backwards, trying to blow him out the airlock. He grabbed and pushed. Brian held on to the wall for safety. He moved along it slowly. Eventually, he found a door, and then he was sliding down a sharp flight of stairs, and then he was in a bar. Brian recognized the decor immediately. This was the conference suite at the Orient Hotel. Brian must have walked in through the fire door. He'd drunk here before. I did really good mozzarella sticks. Tonight, however, it was clearly a private function. Every person in the bar was dressed in a giant animal costume, like sports mascots, but slightly cheaper looking. Giant foxes, giant cats, giant dogs, all walking on their hind legs, drinking tiny cans of craft beer through straws. There was lots of exaggerated head cocking and pointing going on. Brian limped over to the bar and asked the barman if he knew how to make a chloroform Charlie. Hey, said a wolf next to him. I'm Lucas. Brian shook the wolf's soft purple hand. Lucas the wolf? Uh, my persona name is Roheo, actually. Um, you don't look like you're part of like, the fandom community, no offense. But you do look like very cool. I love this uh glowing epaulet here. Brian had forgotten that he was still dressed in his Astro Guard casino uniform. Some of it had been damaged when he jumped out of Jeff's car, so it looked a little more dystopian than when he put it on this morning. I was just wondering if you could uh you know, like just tell me a little bit more about your character. Cause uh 
because I love it, said Lucas. What? said Brian. Lucas brought both his hands up to cover his mouth in a cartoonish, oh no gesture. I'm not bothering you, am I? No, said Brian. Okay. Said Lucas. Well, my persona, that's furry persona, my, my persona is a wall, because basically that speaks to my inner truth as a bit of a loner, but also someone who has a sharp sense of humor. Rohale, he's a bit of a uh, wandering Ronin type character. He's there to help people, but uh, he doesn't stick around. And, and this just kind of reflects my own upbringing, which was uh, very isolated, I want to say. I'm from Montana, if you've heard of it. It's the, uh, the Big Sky State. Okay. Okay, so that's me. Who are you? Brian. No, no your character name. Brian. No, your, no, your character name. Uh, but I, my name is Devog. Go on. I'm a space pirate. That's awesome. I, um, me and the other space pirates, we fly around in our spaceship, kidnapping people and forcing them to compete in games of skill and strength. And then when we're done with them, I try and blow them out of an airlock into the deathly grip of space. Okay. Okay. And, um, new twist. Uh, I'm probably gonna go to prison for clubbing a man with an axe handle. Okay. Said Lucas. Well, look, if this is still at the workshopping stage, listen, in the furry fandom, like, we try to choose a persona that emphasizes our good qualities. So, maybe you just want to think about who you want to be and then create a persona that reflects that. Like, I know that's not easy, but listen, like, I just look at you and I, and I mean, you don't really want to kill people by throwing them into space, do you? Not really. <gasps> do you want to dance? Sorry? I said, do you want to dance? I, I really love this song. This is, this song is kind of like my character's theme tune. Like, I like to imagine it's like the opening credits to my cartoon. Like, I have to come with me. Brian hobbled after Lucas to the middle of the dance floor. Brian watched as Lucas began a series of rehearsed dance moves. First some Travolta disco finger, then a choo-choo train to the left, then a choo-choo train to the right. He put his hands on his hips, shuggled them forwards, then shuggled them back. Then he did some chicken steps in a little circle, which felt like an odd choice for an anthropomorphic wolf, but there you go. Lucas looked back in Brian's direction and did a kind of naughty finger wag, which Brian took as his cue to start dancing too, which he did. Brian could see the advantages of having all your friends be cartoon characters. Body language was certainly a lot easier to read. A circle had now formed around Brian, a menagerie of humanoid animals flickering in the disco strobe. So, so we'll go off the teddy bear tree. There was a yellow fox with a monobrow, a green and white deer trying to drink a bottle of Prosecco, a purple cat and a slightly grubbier red cat, a blue dog in chinos, 
a body-popping triceratops, and Lucas, his purple wolf's mane whipping side to side, right arm extended in the devil sign. It's short. It was at this moment, surrounded by giant dancing anthropomorphized animals, that Brian Dickie Smith felt the chains of time fall away, no longer trapped in the past, no longer trapped by the future. Just for a second, he felt the absolute freedom of the moment. He could go anywhere. He could be anything that he wanted to be. In a moment of unexpected joy, Brian Dickey Smith accidentally shouted the word, Grandma. Grandma? Grandma! It came completely out of nowhere, but it also felt really good, so we did it again. Grandma! Grandma! Grinning ear to ear, the words seemed to come from somewhere deep inside him, a long forgotten memory dislodged from a boy he once was. It wasn't a cry for help or a cry of despair. It was just the sound he used to make when he was tired of being alone in his mind. When a story had run its course and the time had come to go do something else instead. Lucas cocked his head on one side and gave Brian two thumbs up as a gesture It didn't carry a huge amount of information, but it was enough. That's it, Grandma. Did you hear that bit? That's the end of another episode of the podcast. Thanks again for listening to Imaginary Advice. Hey, if you'd like to support the show, I, I need the help. This is a, uh, a one-person operation. I write and record and edit it myself. A new episode takes about two weeks full-time work to make. One day, uh, I'd really love to be able to pay myself a wage for doing this. That's the dream. Uh, slowly, I'm getting there with listener donations through patron.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. If you go to patreon.com forward slash Ross G Sutherland, you can sign up to give me a small monthly payment to help me keep the lights on. If you're already a supporter, I'm so impossibly grateful. You guys, uh, you are the grandmas of my broken heart. May your may your own magnetic tapes never unspool in the deck. Um, don't worry if you can't financially help, but uh, writing a little review on iTunes is also another great way to help me out if you come to see the show in Chicago please come say hi um, my name is Ross Sutherland thanks for listening <laughs>